Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class at the Parkway Church. Oops. Uh, we haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to do it. There will be some audience congregational involvement in this class. So if you are sitting in this back half of the sanctuary room, auditorium, what do we call this? I don't know. While I'm praying, you can very discreetly make your way towards the front half. No one will know. Eyes will be closed. Heads will be bowed. And you'll just magically be somewhere different. Okay? Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray as we study your word, as we consider uh, the work of the gospel around the nations of the world, you would sharp, sharpen us. You would shape our minds biblically to think well about missions, you would uh, help us to hold fast to what is good uh, and see uh, what needs changing, Father God, whether in our own hearts, uh, in our church, or around the world. Father, we pray uh, you would do a good work for the sake of your name among the nations, that you'd use just these next 45 minutes, God, to uh, magnify yourself in us and help us to uh, just behold the wonder of your work among all the people's of the earth. God, expand our vision of your kingdom. Keep it from being such a small myopic thing here at 1030 on Sunday mornings and expand it uh, to help us see your global glory. Now we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, we are this semester going through our church mission statement our new mission statement, which is as follows, there at the head of your notes, the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, display his love to one another, and declare him to the world. That's why we exist. And today, uh, in this class particular, we're going to be focusing on the third of those three Ds, the declare element, and within that kind of big category of declaring Christ, uh, we're going to talk about international missions. So here's how this is going to work. I'll kind of give you the outline ahead of time. First, we're going to talk about the what of missions. What are we talking about? What is international missions? Then we'll talk about the why behind missions. Uh, and then third and finally, we'll get to the how, the kind of main question we're driving towards, the how of missions. Uh, a quick disclaimer, I've taught on this topic kind of tangentially or partially in uh, previous theological equipping classes. I think in the spring, yeah, in the spring I did one on missions as a theme across the whole Bible. And then a few weeks ago I did one on uh, a class on evangelism. Some of the things I'm going to say will be familiar because there's obviously going to be some overlap between evangelism, between missions as a theme in the Bible, and just kind of how to engage in international missions here. So uh, I think repetition is a good thing, though, so hopefully uh, if it's familiar, it will at least solidify uh, some of these things for you. All right, so first, uh, what is international missions? Uh, what is international missions? It's important we start with the what, right, because the what will give us clarity on the why and the how. And I meant to get the whiteboard up here, and I totally forgot, so we're not going to use it, but that's fine. Uh, but question, uh, what are some things that just generally speaking, might get put under the umbrella. You don't, you don't have to agree. You could agree or disagree with whether it belongs there. But what are some things that might go under the umbrella of international missions? What are some things that might be uh, put in there, again, whether you think they belong there or not? What, are, what would you say some of those things are? Say, so who, who said something? Food programs. Food programs. Okay. 
So getting food to people, is that what a food program is? Okay, getting food to hungry people. Hungry people around the world, getting food to them. Yeah, that's something that might be under the umbrella. What are some other things? Disaster relief, totally, absolutely. There's a hurricane that hits this part of the world. There's a, a famine or there's all kinds of, you know, there's a, a genocide, there's horrible war, there's different things going on and addressing those kind of needs. What are some other things that might go under the, that category? The umbrella of international missions. Building schools, who said that? It's Rory, there you are. Building schools, totally. What else? Medical missions. Evangelism, that was the obvious one, right, I would think. Was that Gabe, did you say that? Good job, Gabe. My, my auditory localization's working now, only for Gabe. Um, yeah, evangelism would certainly be something that goes under that category. Anything else? Helping Israel. Okay, interesting. So a specific uh, understanding of, yeah, ethnic Israel today might, might go under international missions. Yeah. What, Betty? Planning churches. Yeah, that's, I, I was waiting for that one too. Planning churches. Surely that goes under the big category of international missions. Yeah, these are all, all things that I think today go under, uh, what, what, not, not go under, but might be put under that umbrella. We're going to talk about what belongs under the umbrella today, but it is helpful to kind of orient ourselves here at the beginning. What are some things that when I say international missions, people might assume? And I think you've kind of mentioned, you've listed a lot of those different things. Uh, I have uh, five elements, uh, two international missions we're going to work through here uh, at the beginning of our time for the, for the what of missions, five things that make, biblically, that make international missions what it is. Uh, and I think going through these five will hopefully clarify for us what belongs under that umbrella. So first, missions is God's work. Missions is God's work. So uh, before I explain what I mean by that, I want to add, well, hopefully you understand what I mean by that. Before I defend that, let me ask you, why might that matter? What's significant about the very first thing we say about missions is that it's God's work? Why might that matter? It, who said that? Brett? Yeah. So it's success depends on God. Absolutely. Other, other reasons why it's important to think of missions under the umbrella of God's work? He defines what it is. Absolutely. We could just say, here's what I think we should be doing. Here's, what I, you know, here's another thing. Here's this thing. But if it's God's work, God defines what it is. Anything else? He gets the glory. Was that Al who said that? Yes, Al. Great. Yeah, he gets the glory. Totally. That's important. It's God's work. He's doing it. So it's going to be successful. And he gets the glory. Yeah, these are all things that I thought of. If it's God's work, he defines what it is. He determines how it's done. Not just like he says, hey, this objective, and then we're like, okay, we'll do whatever we want to make that happen. No, he also defines how it's done, and its success, its progress is under his direction. So it all comes from the fact that it is God's work. So defending this point biblically, you can, uh, I won't rehash it all for you, but uh, in the spring when I taught on missions as a theme across the whole Bible, uh, I talked about how one of the main things that we see in Scripture is that God is the one who starts who directs and who completes missions. So at the very beginning, Abraham is not walking around men like, I think I want to bless all the nations of the earth in Genesis 12. No, no, no. God comes to Abraham and he says, 
I got a plan. Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So God initiates it himself. We, we saw that in that, that uh, text that God promised missions throughout his word. So there's this expectation throughout the Old Testament of missions coming. We talked about how God inaugurated missions, kind of missions par excellence through his son, through Christ, uh, and how in the book of Revelation we see missions coming to its eternal conclusion. Missions is through and through God's work. It is not some idea that some pastor had somewhere that we're like, that's cool, we want to do that too. It's not something that we thought of, some new initiative we invented. It's not our idea. It's God's idea. And so he uh, gets to direct how it is done. He gets to determine what it is, and he gets to, uh, to define uh, its success. So uh, I, I said that at the beginning because I think, as we'll talk here today, and I'll, I'll reference a book a number of times, uh, some, some mistakes that I think are made in modern missions can be traced back to forgetting this, that missions is God's work. It, it, goes, it comes from him, and so mistakes that might be made in the kind of greater missions landscape today might fail to realize that. They might give lip service to it, but they might not realize, oh, actually God has not just said, do missions, and then we figure out what that is, and we figure out how we want to do it. No, God has, had, has said more than that. He's given us uh, the way to do it. He's promised, again, to direct its progress and to bring it to its conclusion. So that's so, so important. And just one passage I want us to see that in here uh, is Isaiah chapter 2. And this particularly gets at the success of missions uh, as we see it in the Scriptures. So I love this passage. It's, it's so cool. So Isaiah has this vision from God, and he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And what I think is so cool about that is he's describing this uphill magnetism, right? So, so the, the flow goes against gravity. The pagan nations come to Yahweh, come to the God of Israel uh, and against the grain, against the flow of gravity. They, they flow up hill because he is drawing them to himself. It's his work. And what is so cool, in John chapter 12, we see Jesus use that exact same image to describe his own ministry. He says, and I, Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth, familiar language, I will draw all people to myself. So Jesus is saying, remember Isaiah's vision Calvary is the mountain of the Lord that the nations will flow to. The nation where the, the mountain, rather, where Christ was crucified is where he will, against the flow of gravity, against every inclination of the human heart, he will draw with cords of love his people to himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue, because missions is God's work. Second part of our definition here: missions is gospel. Work. Missions is gospel work. Since it's God's work, as we said, he gets to define it. And he says very clearly, Matthew 28, it's about making disciples. Luke 24, it's about the forgiveness of sins. Acts 1, it's about bearing witness to the ends of the earth. Those are gospel things. Missions is gospel work. So uh, again, there are mistakes we might make in missions today that come from a failure to realize this. So uh, what are we supposed to be doing? What is missions fundamentally about? Is it about digging wells? Is it about health care? Is it about building schools or orphanages? Those are good things, 
that I think we should do. I'm not against any of those things. Those are awesome things. But if missions is God's work, he defines what it is. And he is very clear in his word. Missions involves the work of the gospel. It involves its gospel work. It is about reaching humankind, reaching the nations of the earth with the life-changing message of Christ crucified. So is there a place for human suffering in missions, for addressing human suffering in missions? Of course there is. Of course there is. We should care about all these things. We should digging wells, building schools, you know, providing medical services. Those are good things to do. But without the gospel, without the message of forgiveness of sins, without making disciples, without bearing witness, it's not missions. As John Piper has said, Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Clean water and modern medicine can alleviate suffering, but only Christ can offer salvation from eternal suffering. And that is fundamentally what has to be involved for something to be missions as God defines it. So that's what missions is in terms of its content. The next question then is, what is missions in terms of its audience? Who is it for? Who's missions directed to? And that's the third thing here. Missions is ethnological work. It is ethnological work. There is a fancy word there for you that I chose for two reasons. One, because the last three all start with E, and I'm a Baptist, so I like alliteration. Okay, so I just had to work for it. There it is, ethnological. We got it. Uh, but second, more importantly, I chose that word because it's from the Greek word for nations. So the Greek word for nations, you may have heard us talk about before, is ethnos. It's where we get our, our uh, modern English word ethnicity. It's related. Uh, so we're talking about international missions. So the nations are the object of missions. Missions is about the nations of the earth getting the gospel to them. And I think it's important for clarity. We know what the Bible means when it says the word nations. So uh, when, when we talk about nations today, we usually mean nation states. So we mean the United States of America. We mean China. We mean Russia. You know, we mean France. These are, these are nation states. But when the Bible talks about the nations of the earth, it's something more like a, an ethno-linguistic group. It's kind of harder to define than just, a, you know, this land here, these people under this government system. Uh, it's groups that, that share a language, a cultural history, a worldview. And there are, there are some differences of, of opinion among people who study these things over what constitutes a people group. Uh, and we're not going to get into all that. But it is clearly, it's smaller and a little more defined than just a nation state like the United States of America or China. Uh, so missions is not just about gospel work in China as a country. Missions is about gospel work among the Hmong, among the Han, among the Ainu, among the Uyghur peoples of China. So those are individual people groups that exist in the nation state of China that the Bible would say that's an ethnos, that's a, a nation uh, in, when the, the Bible uses that term. And that's going to be important as we see the term nation throughout the scriptures uh, this morning. And I also think that's important because that highlights some of the difference between evangelism and missions. Evangelism is, uh, is necessarily very similar to missions because the word evangel means gospel. We've already said missions is gospel work. So what's the difference? Well, I would say evangelism is any gospel work. 
And missions, as I'm using it here, is a subcategory of gospel work among the peoples of the world. So not just, you know, in your, with your next door neighbor who you know, has the same cultural heritage, the same worldview, the same uh, kind of uh, language as you. It means crossing a boundary, going somewhere where the gospel is needed, uh, the nations of the earth. So missions is ethnological work. Fourth, missions is ecclesiological work. Another big word for you here. You might remember the Greek word ekklesia, is a word for church, so ecclesiology is theology about the church or something related to the church. Missions is about the church, and I'm going to make that case in two different ways, or I'm going to make that, I'm going to explain how that exists in two different ways. So missions is about the church, first, in that the church is the origin of missions, and second, that the church is the objective of missions. So another way to say that would be Gospel-preaching churches are the ordinary means and the earthly aim, the goal of missions work. So we'll take those one at a time. First, churches are the ordinary means of missions. Look at Romans chapter 10. Very famous passage, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's, he's kind of stringing together. He's working backwards in this logical chain, right? He, he's saying, okay, what's the goal? We want people to be saved. That's what we want. For that to happen, they have to call on Jesus. For that to happen, they need to believe in Jesus. For that to happen, they need to hear about Jesus. For that to happen, someone has to preach Jesus to them. And for that to happen, someone has to send them. Someone has to be sent. Paul has no mental category for an unsent missionary or a self-appointed missionary. Paul can't even conceive of that reality. He's like, how can they go unless they're sent? How can they preach unless they're sent? Someone has to send them. The, the church which, who sends is the ordinary means of missions. I think that's fairly clear prescriptively, but we also just see it descriptively in the New Testament, the church is where missions starts. So look at Acts chapter 13. This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. Uh, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. What are they doing? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What I love about this is the church is just worshiping God. They're just, they're just worshiping, and God sets apart for them missionaries to go out from their midst. That's where it starts. The church sends missionaries because someone has to send them. And God's design here is for that role to be filled by the church. But it doesn't just end there. Churches are not only the means, but also the aim of missions. So what do we see the disciples doing after Jesus gives them the great commission? He sends them out. They go and they plant churches. That's what Paul does throughout the book of Acts. He travels around, plants a church, plants a church, plants a church. He does, that, that, that's what he's doing. He's trying to bring churches into existence. He's raising up churches to worship God. Look at Acts chapter 11. 
This is how the church in Antioch came into existence. The church that sent out Barnabas and Saul. Acts 11, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he had found him, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, sorry, I skipped, I, I skipped a few verses. I meant to mark that for you. Sorry. Uh, that for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What's, what's happening there? So missionaries got to Antioch. The church in Jerusalem heard about the work of God there and said, let's own this work. Let's take ownership. We're going we're gonna to see a church planted in Antioch. And so that's what they did. And then in Acts 13, two chapters later, the church at Antioch is sending out missionaries. So that's where the Paul and Barnabas missionaries getting sent out comes from, is from the church in Antioch. So what we see here, I have a little diagram. I apologize for the cheesy word art. Uh, but worship of God fuels the work of God, which fuels the worship of God, which fuels the work of God. This is how God has designed the church to be involved in missions. It's a pattern you see just again and again throughout the whole Bible. God does a work that fuels his worship. They're just worshiping the Lord in Antioch. That fuels his work. It's clearest here in the church. God raises up churches that worship him, and they raise up churches that worship him. This is why this order, delight, display, declare, matters. The church in Antioch, delighted in their God, and they displayed his love to one another, and they went out and declared him to the world. Now, that would make a pretty good mission statement. Right? Jared, you write that down. That's a pretty good one, right? We should use that, right? So that's, that's just what we see happening throughout the book of Acts. There's this worship of God that fuels the work of God that fuels the worship of God. And so the local church is where, from an earthly perspective, missions begins and ends. Missions is God's work, it's gospel work, it's ethnological work, it's ecclesiological work. Final element here, it is eschatological work. It's another fancy theological term. Sorry, there's been too many of those this morning. But eschatos means last in Greek. So eschatology is study of the last things, the end times. And missions, very clearly, throughout the New Testament, involves the final purposes of God for the nations of the earth. I love the, the trajectory we see in Scripture of what God is doing among the nations. I think we actually see a microcosm of it in Matthew chapter 24, uh, where the phrase all nations appears twice in just a few verses. And I want you to notice the change that takes place. So 24 verse 9, Jesus tells his disciples, they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then just a few verses later, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end, again, end times, and then the end will come. Uh, all nations, at the beginning of that part passage, are those who hate God's people, who are opposed to Christ. And here, the gospel is then preached to all nations. So the, the persecutors become the object of the preaching. And that's, that's what God is doing among the nations. They are opposed to him. They hate him and his people. And yet the gospel is going out in response to that persecution. And then we see it leads very famously to Revelation chapter 7. We'll come to this passage again later. But John writes, After this I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all nations, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a massive shift that has taken place, that God is working in the end of time. The nations rage against the Messiah and his anointed, the Lord and his anointed, rather, and in return, the gospel goes out and the nations turn to the Messiah. It's a beautiful, cool thing God is doing, and missions is the privileged duty of being a part of that work. So that's what missions is. And now we'll get to the why behind it. Why should we be involved in this work? Why should we care about this work? So uh, again, this section will be somewhat familiar if you were here when I taught on evangelism. This is the same acronym I used. Uh, why should we engage in international missions? Three reasons that spell out now, N-O-W, now. And these reasons, they work, they go in ascending order of importance. So they start with an important reason, but not the most important. Second reason is more important than the first. And the third reason is the most important reason of all. So why missions? Well, first, because the nations of the world are in desperate need. They are in desperate need. There is a universal condition that we find described in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want you to see two things there. First, how serious the problem is. Look at, look at the words Paul uses. Dead, following the world, following Satan, living in the passions of the flesh, the body, the mind, children of wrath. The problem is not ignorance. If the problem was ignorance, education would be the solution. The, the problem is not illness or disease. If the primary problem was illness or disease, medicine would be the solution. The problem that is most foundational is a spiritual depravity. We are dead in our sins. That's how serious it is. But notice, secondly, how universal the problem is. Paul just tacks it on at the end. Like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. There's a common question people will ask. Maybe you've been asked or you've wondered yourself. What does God do with the righteous man who lives in the African bush who never hears about Jesus. What does God do with him? I mean, that seems unfair, right? The righteous man in the African bush who never hears about Jesus, what happens? I'll tell you what happens. He goes to heaven. The problem is he doesn't exist. There is no righteous man in the African bush because the Bible is clear. There is a universal problem, Romans chapter 3, all, both Jews and Greeks. The word there for Greeks would also be Gentiles. So everyone, all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if there was someone who was perfectly righteous, sure, they'd go right to heaven, but they don't exist because none is righteous. It's a universal problem without exceptions. And so there 
is a desperate need that the peoples of the earth have to hear about the gospel which addresses that need. And I made this same point about need when I taught on evangelism, but I think there's a, an, an added layer of urgency when it comes to missions. Uh, so missiologists will differentiate. This isn't necessarily a biblical category, but it's helpful, I think, to differentiate between the lost and the unreached. So the lost are those who have heard about Christ and rejected him, who don't believe, but they have access to the gospel. And the unreached are those who don't have that access. They've never heard of Christ. They don't have someone who has been sent and preaching Christ to them. And it's hard to believe because we live in Bible-saturated McKinney. We live in the Bible Belt. It's, it's hard to believe that there are people who live their entire lives and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. But those people exist by the billions. They exist by the billions. And so we must engage in international missions because of the desperate and universal need the peoples of the earth have. If we are to love them, we cannot let them remain with such a desperate need. Second, we engage in missions because we must obey the command of our Savior. We must obey the command of our Savior. Matthew 28, a very famous passage that's pretty clear. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus doesn't say just make disciples. He says make disciples of all nations. We we can't just act like he never said those three words, like they don't matter, they don't exist. No, he said them. It's pretty clear. In fact, not just Matthew 28 that gives that command, but the entire Old Testament gives that command. Let me explain what I mean. So look at Luke chapter 24. Jesus is on the Emmaus Road, very famous passage, right? He says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now, Bible trivia for a second. Jesus says it is written. Does anyone know what passage he's quoting? Good job. None of you are liars. That's not a quote. He's not quoting a passage. He's summarizing the entire Old Testament. Jesus says, you want to read the Old Testament? Now let me save you some time. This is what it says. The Christ should suffer and on the third day arise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He's summarizing the whole Old Testament. How do I know it's the whole Old Testament? Because what did he just say? The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the whole Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So by Psalms, he means writings, the poetic books. By the prophets, he, that actually, there's the former prophets, the latter prophets, uh, which would be the historical books, and then the, the, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then the law of Moses. So literally that phrase, those three things, he's saying this is the whole Testament. 
And he's saying the whole Testament ends with the gospel going out to all nations. That's what it's commanding. So it's not just Matthew 28. It's not just Luke. It's not just Acts. It's the entire Old Testament. And we can't ignore that. There are other examples I have there for you, but I mean, I hope it's pretty clear. Our obedience is at stake. Jesus has said, this must go out to all nations. And if we act like he didn't say that, we're not obeying him. Third, and the greatest reason to engage in international missions. First, the need. Second, our obedience. Third, the infinite worth of our God. There is no better reason to do something about the lost and unreached peoples of the world than God's infinite worthiness to be praised. John Piper, very, very famously in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, great book on missions, he captures this point. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions because we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. We, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, enjoy the glory of God. It's not some dry, separate thing. We bask, we delight in him, and we want to bring others in to that great joy because God is the one who is most supremely worthy of praise. That's the worship of God, work of God diagram at work there, right? We, God does a work in us, and which leads to his worship, which should lead us to do a work for him, which leads to his worship. This is how God has designed it to work. Isaiah 6, I, I won't read it for you. I'll just summarize quickly. This is the pattern, right? Isaiah sees God in his glory. He experiences the cleansing touch of his salvation, and then he jumps out of his seat to go and tell people about him because he can't help himself. He's just, he, he just like, I, send me, I'll go. He, God didn't even say quite what he needs him to go and do. He's like, who's going to go? And Isaiah's like, me, me, me. I saw God in his glory. How could I not go and tell people? I long to do that. Our delight in God's glory is the fountain for our declaration of that same glory. And this is particularly relevant when it comes to missions because God is working to bring for himself a global chorus of praise to his name. So we saw in Revelation 7. Let me read it again. This is the vision John has. The end of time. After this I looked and behold... A great multitude, no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, and languages, that's important, we'll come back to it, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I highlight languages and a voice there because this is a, a multitude, a multiplicity of many languages singing with one voice. Praising God with every tongue that has ever been created. Every, every kind of language that exists will praise the glory of God. But right now, at this moment in time, 40% of the peoples of the world are unreached with the gospel. I'm stealing this point from David Platt, and I've heard him talk about it. It's 
So crucial. He's saying if 40% of the peoples of the world are unreached with the gospel, that means two-fifths of the notes in this song are missing. You can't sing a song with two-fifths of the notes. God is not receiving the beautiful, glorious harmony of praise from all the peoples of the earth that he is worthy of. And so the greatest reason for missions is the glory of our King, we like Isaiah have seen glory in Christ. We like Isaiah have received the miracle of his salvation. So we like Isaiah should be full of passion to see his name praised among the peoples of the earth, to, to see him receive the glory, the full chorus of praise that he is due. All right. So now, finally, we get to the main point of the class. We're only, you know, three quarters of the way through our time. That's all right. Um, oops, lost a page. All right, main point of this class that we've been driving towards, how should we engage in international missions? And the reason, I hope you know, why I spent all that time on the what and the why is because that is foundational to the how. Again, going back to the very first point we made, if missions is God's work, he gets to determine the how. We come to him. We don't say, I have an idea. Here, we should just try this. Sure, there, there's, I'm not saying there's like, super narrow little line you got to walk, but I'm, I'm saying God has set the boundaries. This is what missions is. And so that should determine how we engage in it. And so the first three things, the first three ways to engage in missions, um, I have here all drawn from those three now reasons, their need, our obedience, and God's worth. So first, to engage in missions, we can start by studying the need. Start by studying the need. Every human being on the planet has a need to be reconciled with God, and we need to understand exactly how that need manifests itself, how that need exists in every human heart. So simply, uh, this is the easiest homework you'll get today, go and read your Bible. See what it says about sin. See what it says about conversion. See what it says about salvation and grace. Understand the theological reality that the Bible paints for us, you will understand the need. And after you do that, you can also learn really just from a practical perspective about the needs of the nations. There's all kinds of resources out there. I've listed a couple of them there for you. If I've quoted statistics or other things in this tech, most of them are from either Joshua Project or the CIA World Factbook. Um, but, but just just recognize, look at the resources out there and recognize that our Bible Belt existence is an anomaly. There are not churches on every corner in most parts of the world. Vast swaths of the world know nothing about Jesus and studying that need will stir in you a passion to do something about it. And one of my favorite ways to kind of study the need, the fourth thing I have listed there practically, read missionary biographies. I love reading missionary biographies. They're so encouraging, so cool for many, many reasons. But one of them is you, your eyes are open to the needs of the nations. You realize, oh my goodness, John Patton went and shared the gospel with cannibals in the South Pacific. I had no idea, like, this is what their life is like. It's just crazy. They're so lost. They're so desperate for Christ, and they don't even know it. And so reading missionary biographies can stir that desire in you. If, at the end of your notes there on page five, I have a list of book recommendations. There's a number of missionary biographies there. Uh, if you are interested in starting one, uh, come to me and I'll, I'll can, I've read each of these. I can tell you, you know, hey, this one's shorter, this one's longer, this is kind of about this. Um, they're all really, really good and, and worth reading. So uh, read missionary biographies. 
Uh, second way to engage in missions should be probably the simplest, most obvious one. Obey the command. Obey the command. Jesus gave us a command. Obey the command. It's, it's pretty simple. I mean, Nike, just do it. So how do we obey? Well, I've got four specific things to do. And the first might be surprising. Evangelize locally. Evangelize locally. That's a weird thing. We're talking about international missions. Why is the you know, first thing, obey the command, evangelize locally? That's interesting. Well, two reasons for that. One, there is no such thing uh, as transformation by aviation, right? So that's kind of a, a quote you'll hear missionaries use. It's true, right? Uh, you can't just go somewhere and be like, oh, now I know how to evangelize. Now I care about lost people. Now I talk about, no, no, no. If you're not doing it here, you won't do it there. It doesn't just magically happen when you, you know, go to an exotic place. So evangelize locally. And that also will help you just learn how to reason with someone from the scriptures and how to explain the gospel to them. Yeah, sure, every culture is unique and there's contextualization and all these things, but ultimately the, the need is the same everywhere. And so ultimately the message at the heart is the same. And doing the work of evangelism here will help you do the work of evangelism elsewhere should God call you to do it. Uh, but second, and more importantly, I say evangelize locally is just a really cool, practical way. We live in a globalized world, and God has brought the nations of the earth to us. I mean, you look at Dallas is incredibly ethnically diverse. There are people groups from around the world living in our area, or people from those people groups living here, and maybe they come from places where gospel access is incredibly difficult and incredibly hard to get workers or any kind of resources there, and they live here now. And it's so sad. That, I mean, you read the statistics. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but how few of those people get invited into an American home, much less a Christian home. They, they just come to America, they you know, get a job, and they do their thing, and, and they never interact with someone who knows Christ, and that is on us. Local evangelism can play a significant role in reaching the nations because the nations sometimes live locally now. They could literally be down the street or in your neighborhood. So local evangelism is a way to engage in obeying the command. And then I have the last three here, kind of the more traditional ways people will talk about obeying this command, pray, give, and go. Pray, very simply, Jesus said pray, before he said go. So Matthew 9, he, he commanded his disciples to pray that God would raise up laborers for the harvest. And so prayer is essential, not only because it's commanded, but remember, missions is God's work. If it's God's work, we need God to do something. We need him to work, and prayer is how we beg him to do it. And he would delight to answer that prayer, of course. He commanded that prayer, so when we pray it, of course he's going to obey, or you know, not obey, but he'll he'll reciprocate, right? He will, he will delight to do that. He loves answering that prayer. So pray. Second, give. This is what John commands in 3 John. They have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's such a cool term. You get to be a fellow worker supporting someone who is going somewhere else with the gospel. What an, what an encouragement. One of my favorite pieces of art in our home, we only have like two, so it's small, you know, pickings. Um, uh, but uh, it's a, a picture from Morocco. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. From North Africa. Um, from someone I know there who I give money to occasionally. I've got to be careful. This is recorded. Um, 
And he sent it to me and I almost wept when I got it because I felt in such a deep sense, we are a part of the work they're doing uh, among people who know nothing about Christ there. Uh, we are fellow workers for the truth. And so it's not just writing a check and saying, boom, I did it, but you get to be a part of this. And just an honest fact, missions cost money. Missions cost money. Financial sacrifices are necessary to fulfill the great commission. And finally, pray, give, and go. Perhaps God is sending some of you to go among the peoples of the earth uh, to get on a plane and bring the gospel somewhere where it is not. If no one goes, the Great Commission will remain unfinished. So consider that possibility for yourself. Don't just write it off. Is that something for other people, people who are you know, called in some mystical, you know, angelic appearance or whatever? I don't know. Right? Like, no, no, no. God calls people like in Acts 13 who are just worshiping him, who delight in him, and long to see him known among the nations. That's how God does that. If you want to talk about that, shoot me an email. Let's get coffee. I'd love to, love to have a chat. Uh, and part of going, uh, it's helpful to just take a moment here, uh, talk about short-term mission trips. Uh, I've, I've kind of two main thoughts on short-term mission trips. Uh, first, we, we, I think we need to be careful not to oversell them. Uh, it's common, you know, uh, to see people who get really excited, almost like a mentality, I'm going to start a revival on this one-week mission trip to Mexico. You know, God can do that. Uh, but I don't think he's really in the habit of doing that, uh, starting a revival from just one week of work. And so uh, don't oversell it because the work of the gospel is often slow and long, and you're most likely going to uh, not, you, can, you might move the needle, praise God, but you're most likely not going to start a revival. And so be patient and, and don't oversell the value of just you know, a short-term trip. Uh, but I do think, secondly, short-term mission trips are really beneficial in, in two ways. So subcat two subcategories here for you. There's value. Uh, one, when short-term mission trips mobilize for missions. So uh, if you go on a mission trip, you are excited to pray more. You're excited to give more and maybe even go uh, long-term. So there's short-term trips can do a great work in mobilizing for missions. Uh, but they also can give real value if they're assisting the long-term work of the gospel that already exists there. So uh, I know a church that has missionaries uh, in the Middle East, and they send uh, short-term trips from their church to support their missionaries there. Uh, and the short-term workers pretty much exclusively will babysit their kids while the parents go to a conference that they find really life-giving and, and nourishing uh, while they're laboring there. That's not like the glorious, like, yeah, we're, you know, among the unreached, doing the hard work in the jungle. No, no, we're babysitting kids, but guess what? They're supporting the long-term work that's going on there, and that is more likely in God's providence to work, uh, to, to, to yield fruit with those who are building these long-term relationships and sowing seeds of the gospel. So that's, that's a great value of short-term missions there. Uh, third way to engage in missions, saturate your heart with God's global glory. Saturate your heart with God's global glory. It is easy to talk about what you love. You hear me talk about Raising Cain's and J.R. Tolkien and every sermon because I love them, right? It's easy to talk about what you love. So if worship is the fuel and the goal of missions, that is where we need to focus. I remember I was in college and there was this missionary from Japan uh, who uh, was kind of meeting, trying to uh, get a group together to talk with and, and uh, potentially raise up long-term workers to come to Japan. And he kind of did his presentation, and there was this, this girl who raised her hand 
Uh, and she said to the missionary, she said, oh, I want to be a missionary in Japan so, so bad because I love Japanese culture and I love the people of Japan. And the missionary cut her off right there. He was a Japanese man himself. Uh, he, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, but if that's why you want to come to Japan, please don't. Please don't come. If, if love for the Japanese people is your foundation, it will crumble. Love for people can get you to the nations. It won't keep you there. Right? Like people will frustrate you and disappoint you. You won't stay. Only love for God can keep you sowing seeds of the gospel among the peoples of the earth. Ministry is hard no matter where you are, but it's especially hard in a foreign context. And that missionary knew that the only one thing can sustain gospel ministry. Only one thing, and that's a heart that is just captivated, that's wrapped up by the glory and the goodness of God. Everything else will crumble. If our delight is in him, it will not crumble. Two quick quotes for you here. Oswald Chambers, Any work for God that has less than a passion for Jesus Christ as its motive will end in crushing heartbreak and discouragement. Count Zinzendorf, famous a missionary leader of the Moravian movement said, I have but one passion. It is he, it is he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. Henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. Do not be all about missions. Do not be a missions guy or girl. Be all about Jesus and let missions flow from that. All right, fourth and final thing here comes in a couple multiple parts. I'll try to do this briefly, though. It kind of all coalesces in one statement. <coughs> How should we engage in international missions with passion and wisdom? Both passion and wisdom. Uh, there's a lot of missions passion among evangelicals, and that's great. I have a lot of that passion myself. But, but passion alone can mislead us if it's not grounded in biblical wisdom, if it's not partnered with what uh, is wise. So we, you know, you should feel an urgency to reach your next door neighbors with the gospel, but you should feel passion for that. But uh, that, if that passion leads you to, you know, stand outside their house with a megaphone and yell at them about Christ, it's probably misdirected passion, right? Probably, probably not going to be very effective, right? And I, I, that's not quite what happens in missionary context, but uh, we, need to, uh, we need to be careful and thoughtful about how to be both passionate and wise. So three things on this. Missions work should be urgent but slow. Urgent, yes. People are living and dying apart from Jesus. That should stir a holy urgency in us to get the eternity-changing message of the gospel to them. But we must not let urgency become recklessness because we might actually do more damage in the long run than good. We must do something, but that doesn't mean anything will do. We can do a lot of harm in the name of urgency. We don't just want churches to be planted. We want healthy churches planted. That will mean taking the time to do it right. That girl who wanted to go to Japan, right? We shouldn't just send anyone who wants to go. We should send those who are well-equipped and well, who are mature and ready to, who already maybe understand some of the difficulties that will be faced. It's good to send missionaries, but it's bad to send people who, uh, who really aren't equipped and aren't ready and aren't well-supported for that work. We don't want to just farm 
problems in our own church out to the nations. That will yield disaster. So we need to take the time to do it right. And second there, we must be strategic but biblical. Across the modern missions landscape, there's a lot of strategies. If you talk with a missionary, I have good friends. They'll talk about strategies. Strategies are great. Nothing wrong with strategies. We need to be strategic in getting the gospel to the peoples of the earth. Strategies aren't bad, but there are some that kind of exist in the missions world that I think are unhealthy. Uh, The most helpful book for me in this is called No Shortcut to Success. I'm going to give this away at the end of our time. A Manifesto for Modern Missions. It's written by a guy named Matt Rhodes, who's a missionary somewhere in North Africa, I think. Um, Really, really helpful book talking about some of the problematic strategies. Most of them boil down to uh, kind of an unhealthy focus on speed and numbers. Uh, So, for for example, uh, there are some mission strategies that will encourage, hey, you just got converted today. Tomorrow we're going to send you out to go plant a church. Uh, And and that's unhealthy. We would never do that here, right? If someone's a new convert, right, they can't pastor a church. It's actually, it's actually one of the specific qualifications for pastors is not a recent convert. And so to go plant a church when you just became a believer and haven't been discipled is incredibly unhealthy. And yet it is something that does exist in the modern missions world today. We need to be strategic, but we also need to be biblical. Uh, and third way to be passionate and wise, engage in missions personally, but ecclesiologically. I won't, I won't belabor this, uh, but I hope you've already seen The Great Commission is for you, it's also for us, right? It is an ecclesiological, a church-oriented work in both sending laborers and in also what we're trying to do. We're trying to plant churches. So uh, as you send, if you you personally support missionaries, that's great. Uh, I would strongly encourage you, don't support someone who's not sent by a church. Again, Paul has no category of an unsent or a self-appointed missionary. And just practically, that's just a reality, right? Like if my wife and I uh, were supporting missionaries who, who didn't have a sending church, it would be an abdication of a duty because we don't have the time or resources to vet, equip, and fully support them, right? They need a church body to do that. And so just on a practical level, it's really unhealthy and dangerous if we're not, in, not sending missionaries from a church. Uh, but also in the work that churches are doing, or missionaries are doing. It should be tied ecclesiologically. It should be oriented in some capacity towards church planting. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, there's, that's the only thing you can be doing for it to be missions. It's not what I'm trying to say. I think I tried to be careful with my language earlier. It's the ordinary means and the earthly aim. Uh, but this, this is kind of helpful as we think about parachurch organizations. Uh, parachurch, so uh, usually a Christian church, a Christian organization that's not a church, right? There's a lot of them out there, and a ton of them do awesome, awesome work. A ton of them do awesome, awesome work among the nations of the world. Praise God. That's great. Uh, I, the best summer of my entire life, uh, I worked at a sports camp in Greece for two months. It was amazing. I loved it. Uh, but the long-haul work of discipleship needs local churches. It's just a reality. The, the sports camp I was at, for example, right, like, right, we got to share the gospel with Muslim refugees. We got to talk about Christ with them. It was one week at a time. We couldn't do the long-haul work of molding them into the image of Christ through the preaching of the word and through gathering in community. We couldn't do that because that's the, that's the duty of churches. That's what you need churches for. Uh, and so prayer churches are great, but we need to remember who's the bride and who's the bridesmaid. Right? The church is the bride of Christ, and parachurches can do amazing, incredible work, 
aiding the Great Commission, but they are not the ultimate goal. We are not just looking for a thousand new Christian sports camps around the world. That would be a good thing. But if there's not local churches that they're trying to funnel people towards, trying to encourage in some capacity, if there's no connection to local churches, we will be failing in all kinds of the commands that the Bible has for us in terms of the one another's of the scriptures. We're just, you know, okay, you heard the gospel, great, and now you go and we're not connected to you, right? So uh, we need to be careful. We remember, need to remember who the bride is and who are the bridesmaids. The church is essential to missions. I was so encouraged recently. I had a buddy who went overseas uh, as a missionary and uh, in there are uh, kind of meeting with him and his wife uh, where they presented, hey, we're going over here. Here's the nature of the, the gospel there. Here's the work we want to do. They want to do church planting. I said, that's great. It's awesome. Um, but at the end of our call, uh, I was a Zoom call. I, I said, you've talked about church planting. Can you, can you tell me what a church is? When you say church planting, what is a church. Uh, and by his own acknowledgement later, he just kind of stumbled through an answer, just kind of said a few generic things and, and didn't really answer it. Um, but after he'd been on the field for a while, uh, I was so encouraged. He texted me and said, hey man, I've been, you know, I've been thinking so much about that question you asked. Uh, and I, I'm just so grateful that you asked that question because the church I'm realizing is so essential to missions. Like we, we can't do this work if we're not clear on what a church is and what we're trying to do among these people. It sounds great to say church planting, but what we mean by that, what we're actually doing, we have to have clear definitions from the scriptures. And so I was just personally encouraged. I felt a little bad about, you know, kind of embarrassing him with a hard, it was a hard question um, on a call, but it's something we need to ask missionaries. What is a church? What is the work you're trying to do? Help me understand, uh, because the church is essential to missions and we shouldn't we shouldn't just spurn the church as if it's, you know, all the problems in Christianity come from, from that, from churches existing. No, no, no. Christ died for the church. Christ loves the church. And so we need to care about the church. In particular, we see in the scriptures, the church is essential to missions. All right. Let me pray. We have a few minutes for q and I'm going to give away some books before, all right, after I pray, and then we'll do a little bit of Q&A. Sounds good. Lord, we love you, and we are so thankful for these few moments that we got to have to uh, study your word, and Father, we pray you would shape our minds around your scriptures as we consider uh, what it means to see the gospel go to the nations. We pray, God, you would stir in us both passion and wisdom for the gospel among the peoples of the earth. And Father, we pray that the Parkway Church would get to play uh, a, a, a cool role in getting to see that happen, God. It's such a glorious work to be a part of. Uh, and we pray that you would stir in us a passion to be able to do that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.